Thanks for listening to the teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church in Mullica Hill, New Jersey. We trust today's message will challenge you and move you closer to Christ. Here's pastor, teacher, and author, Phil Moser. We are grateful you came with us this morning and that you're worshiping with us and singing. And I know there's children in uh, sometimes right down from the pew and maybe even potentially at some point in this service under your pew, all right? But we are glad they're here as well. So kids, welcome. We want uh, on Easter Sunday for all of our workers to be able to join us here, and that's why we do that. And moms and dads, don't feel awkward if you need to take your kids to the back. There's sound out in the back. We'll open the doors. You can see everything else that's happening here as well. Thank you for coming and worshiping to with us. Jesus said, Jesus said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died and look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and the grave. Resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus is important to us for a number of reasons. Um, And I've been preaching about it for probably, I guess now, almost 30 years of Easter Sundays. But I never quite run out of text to say, but I found a text that uh, I've been through the Gospels, I've compared the Gospels, I've even talked about how the stone in various Gospels was moved away in different ways. I've been through 1 Corinthians 15, I've been through massive passages on the resurrection, and I confess that I forgot the book of Revelation. And it struck me that that leaves us with an incomplete understanding of the resurrection if we do not go to the book of Revelation. And here's why. Jesus says these words, don't be afraid, I'm the first and the last. It sounds like real amazing comfort at a funeral that I am the living one, I died, and look, I'm alive forever, and I hold the keys of death in the grave. And when we come to a funeral, when we come to the grave, when we leave the cemetery, we always find hope in the fact that if the person knew Jesus and we know Jesus, we're gonna see him again, and we even use that conversation. And I'm not saying that's wrong, but I do think now that's incomplete because we can make the resurrection about us and our comfort and the ones we've lost. But that's not what it's about in the book of Revelation. In fact, Preceding this verse where Jesus says, don't be afraid, I find these verses. Just listen. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. And I fell, John says, on my face in front of him because his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And that's when he said, don't be afraid. I want to remind you that one of the things you must understand about the gospel, the resurrection, and the love of Christ is that it isn't just for us. It's for his glory. It's why um, we will worship him for all of eternity. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I've wondered about eternity a little bit. Like, eternity seems like a really long time, okay? And I've kind of wondered, like, what am I going to do for all eternity? Like, after I sweep some streets of gold, like, after I sing a few songs, like, and then we've got to go back and do that all over again. And I think I've missed something. I think I've missed that in my finite understanding of the gospel, of the compassion of Christ, of his sacrifice, and even of the miracle of the resurrection, I don't quite see that fully yet. And if I did, and if you did, we'd understand why we can worship forever and forever and forever. 
Here's the way we're going to talk about it. There is a compassion so vast, there is a sacrifice so extreme, a miracle so astounding that eternity is required to praise God. That's not how our world works, right? Our world works in this kind of way. Hey, when are you taking retirement? Someone might say. Hey, when is school out? Somebody else says. We always think of the next thing, not so in eternity. Because when we fully grasp the compassion that is so vast, the sacrifice so extreme, and the miracle so astounding, we will understand how we have to worship God throughout all of eternity. Let's take that first one, a compassion so vast. Just let me show you the word compassion throughout the scriptures briefly. Remember, Jesus had a compassion that just wasn't for an individual, though he had that. But over and over again in the Gospels, it says he had a compassion when he saw the crowds. And here it is in Matthew chapter 9, and Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. See how he's interested in the individual. But when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Now, the word compassion is a word that means he saw them and he felt bad. There was pity. There was mercy in him for them. Because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. There's this incredible idea that God looked upon us. Jesus looked upon the crowds and had compassion. That's hard for us to do because I don't know about you, but I struggle to remember a person's name after I meet them for even just a few minutes. But here's what I want you to see. Not so with Jesus. He could look at the individual, and he could look at the crowds. Let me show you another place the word compassion is used. It's in a story Jesus tells about the prodigal son. And when the prodigal son comes back, notice the response in Luke chapter 15. And he arose, that is the prodigal son, and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt, see it there, pity, mercy, compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Two things you need to see. One is the father was watching for the son to return. He saw him a long way off. If you have thought in your life, listen, Phil, if you knew what I did, you'd know why I'm hesitant to even come to God. I want to remind you that you don't have to get better to come to God. You have to turn to God and say, listen, Lord, I'm coming back to you, and he will see you a long way off, and he'll feel compassion. He'll see your brokenness, he'll see your stubbornness, he'll see all the things you wish you hadn't done, and he will feel compassion, and literally the Father runs and embraces. Remember I said the compassion is vast? Let me show you how vast. In a familiar passage, for God so loved the world, we read, that he gave his only son. God's compassion is so great that it extends to the entire world. For those of you who are theologians, you might say, okay, Phil, is this limited atonement, unlimited atonement? What is this? Put that aside for just a second and answer and know this, that God looks upon the world and feels compassion. Probably the best way to say that is to just think about those numbers for a moment. In the 1800s, there were about 1 billion people, human beings living on the earth, right? In 1987, there were about 5 billion people or so, and in 2020, there were about 7.5 billion people living on the earth. God's compassion is so vast that he can love all of those who have ever lived and all of those who are yet to live and all of those who are here today. In fact, just let me show you how vast this compassion is. A compassion so vast it touches all of humanity throughout all of history. Most of us don't even know who our great-great-grandparents were. God does. And God felt compassion on them and the generations before and the generations before. Here's the second idea. 
why we're going to have to worship throughout all eternity, why we get to worship through all eternity, a sacrifice so extreme. When we begin to think about the word love as it's described in the Bible, we end up thinking differently about what it means to love. Now, for a moment, just stop and let me explain. As a pastor, I do funerals and I do weddings, and, you know, um, both are opportunities to minister. But I'm telling you, at a wedding, um, most people understand that they will never look better than they do on that moment, okay? That's about as good as they're going to look, right? And I usually try to remind the bride and groom of that, you know, somewhere. This is about as good as it's going to get, okay? <laughs> Just by way of reminder, right? Um, I can't say that about my wife, but she could probably say that about her husband, okay? Uh, She doesn't age, but listen, I'm getting older, okay? So here's the point. We tend to think of love as what we feel when we like someone a little bit more than like them. That's never how the Bible uses the word. In fact, the Bible uses the word to communicate how God loved us sacrificially. Now, this is so important because for just a moment, understand Then here's what we read in Romans 5, verse 8. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. At the Good Friday service, an individual came forward, a guest. He he was visiting with family. And he said to me, listen, tears in his eyes. He was deeply moved by the service. And here's what he said. He said, I just have a question. Why did it have to be like this? It's so painful to see what Christ went through. Why did it have to be like this? Couldn't God have found another way? And I, and I remembered, because my theology's been being developed on this ever since my adult children asked me when they were five years old, why did it have to be like this, okay? And I said, well, let's just think about the attributes of God for a moment. They're, they're all self-expressed. Like, the power of God is self-expressed. We see it if we just go down to the ocean and see what he's created, and, and a wave washes in, and we can't stand against it. And, and when a hurricane or tornado comes, we see all of that power. The power of God is expressed all over the place. It doesn't need someone to express it. It just expresses itself. I remember once when we were in Colorado, and I got up early in the morning and was out fishing on a pond, and the sun came up over the mountain, and literally, I saw the sunrise on the opposite mountain, like a line, like a stark line, and start to come down the mountain, light the mountain up as the sun came up. And literally, I was just, I just read, and I just picked up my psalms and, and read them right there, dropped my fishing rod, didn't care, and got on my knees and just looked at that and said, this is God. And then it dawned on me that God does that every morning, whether I'm out there or not. His power is so great, so intense, that throughout all of the universe, he's doing that all over the place just because he's powerful. Or consider, maybe it is, the holiness of God. He is set apart. He doesn't need to be, that's self-expressed, right? Or consider the wisdom of God. He knows all things. He knows the numbers of hairs that are on your head. He knows when a sparrow falls from the sky. He knows all things, small to the smallest detail to the largest detail. That's God. He knows all things. But there is one characteristic of God that requires another party to be expressed, and that's the love of God. You see, we don't think about it that way because we think we like someone, we like them a little bit more, and then one day we say we love them. But that's not how love works in the Bible. Maybe the best way to say it is this way, and some of you have heard me say this before. We like someone because of, but you love them in spite of. That's right. When a couple stands in front of me and we put them together in in the holy state of marriage, what we are saying is, listen, you like each other, okay, that's great, 
But when you start to see something in the person you don't like, that's when you will start to understand what love is. Because love is what we do in spite of, not what we do because of. And that's precisely the understanding of the Bible. So why did God put a tree of knowledge of good and evil in the garden, even though he knew Adam and Eve would sin? Why did he do that? Why did all of history play out? Because God needed to express incredible sacrificial love in a way that he could be worshiped and glorified for it. You say, I could come up with a better way. No, you couldn't. No, you couldn't. Because no sacrifice is as extreme as what Christ did on the cross. In fact, let me show you that back in the book of Romans. Here we are. Remember, God shows his love for us. While we were still weak, that is, we were so malnourished, the Bible says we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we could do nothing, right? While we were still sinners, by the way, sinners describes the characteristic, uh, the characteristic of someone. It, it describes the fact that they are characterized by sin. That's very different. I've often said, listen, I can golf, but I'm not a golfer, right? You don't want me in your foursome when we go out, all right? Unless you want to spend a couple extra hours looking for golf balls with me, all right? I'm not a golfer. I'm not characterized by being a golfer just because I can swing a club. Guess what? We are characterized by as sinners, named as sinners, because we are so characterized by the sin that we do. And here it is. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. Did you get that? Like, we like to think that we want to know God, that we want to see God, but prior to Christ, we were enemies. Now, watch what else the text does. Remember how I said, this is how love is shown. It sacrifices in spite of something, not because of something. Look at this. Christ died, Christ died, and the death of his son. All expressions that Christ sacrificed himself for us when we were weak, when we were ungodly, when we were sinners, and when we were God's enemies. In fact, that's what we call the extreme sacrifice. A sacrifice so extreme, an innocent man would intentionally die to save his enemies. Just for a moment, think about that for a moment, and you'll understand how extreme it is. Maybe you have someone in your life who, who hasn't been kind, who's, who's, who's betrayed you, who's done things that have made, you, have, have made them your enemies. They treat you like you are an enemy, and you've been okay treating them the same. Okay. Can I ask you a question? Would you be willing to let one of your children die in their place? That's why I call it, there is no sacrifice more extreme. An innocent man, Jesus, dies on a cross, intentionally dying to save his enemies. And that's what Romans 5 teaches us when it says, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. It's a sacrifice so extreme. There is a compassion so vast, a sacrifice so extreme, and a miracle so astounding that eternity is required to praise God. Notice what Jesus said in Revelation chapter 1 again, I died, but look, I am alive forever. Now, resurrections happen in the Bible on kind of a, a semi-infrequent basis. There's about 10 of them, and I want to communicate that Jesus' resurrection is different than all of those other ones, and here's why. 
You can go back and see in, in 1 Kings chapter 17, the widow of Zarephath's son, um, the prophet came and raised him from the dead. A little later in 2 Kings 4, there was a Shunammite widow. She had a son and he died and the prophet raised him from the dead. You may remember in, uh, in, in 2 Kings chapter 13, there's that guy that died and he touched Elijah's bones as he was dying and he bounced back to life. Okay, like that's a lucky guy. All right, okay. Um, when you get to the New Testament, there's the widow of Nain's son. Notice how God's compassion is expressed when these moms, single moms, lose a son. God is looking for them to resurrect their sons. Jairus' daughter in Mark chapter 5, you may remember Lazarus is at a tomb, in a tomb actually, and Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth, and out he comes. And then there's Dorcas in, the, in, in Acts chapter 9, and there's Eutychus, that young man who fell asleep in the service, just a reminder, and died, okay? He fell asleep in the service and died, so you want to stay awake, right? That's the thing. But he fell from the window, and Paul came down and said, not a big deal. I know it's a late night. I've been preaching a long time. I'm, I'm sorry. Let me raise you from the dead. And he came back from life, okay? You just got to get this unbelievably incredible picture that there's resurrections, but none of them are like this resurrection. Because while it is the power of God that resurrected each of these individuals, okay, hang on, you ready? They all came at the hand or the voice of another human being, but not this resurrection. In fact, for just a moment, imagine if, if you could have been, uh, if you could have been close to the tomb and you could put a stethoscope against the tomb, this is what it sounded like on Easter. Just listen. Andrew Peterson says, his heart beats, his blood begins to flow, waking up what was dead a moment ago. His heart beats. Now everything has changed because the blood that brought us peace with God is racing through his veins. He breathes in, his living lungs expand. The heavy air surrounding death turns to breath again, and he breathes out. He is word and flesh once more, and the lamb of God slain for us is a lion ready to roar, and his heart beats. And he rises, glorified in flesh, clothed in immortality, the firstborn from the dead. He rises, and his work's already done, so he's resting as he rises to reclaim the bride he won because his heart beats. You ready for what makes this miracle so astounding? A dead man came back to life without any human help. That's right. Now, we know that God raised him from the dead, but there is a dead man who was in the tomb who suddenly his heart began to beat again. Now, we have one of those paddle-like operations out in our foyer. Uh, you can slow that down a little bit, Ryan. That'd be great. Okay. Um, we have one of those paddle-like operations out in the foyer. Okay. Just imagine for a moment that uh, on the way out today, you don't feel so well, and the next thing you know, bang, you go down in the foyer, okay? You will wake up with someone over you rubbing the paddles, okay? And they're going to put those pedals on your chest. And that makes sense, because even if our heart stops, sometimes we can get it started again with someone, hopefully, who knows what they're doing when they shock you, right? But imagine if, as you're going down, you pull the paddles off yourself, your heart stops, there is no way that you can start your heart beating again. And here's the point. The miracle of Jesus' resurrection is so astounding because in that tomb, his heart started to beat again. This is why 
it just occurred to me, I don't think we've thought about the resurrection fully in such a way that it's just not about our comfort. And that's great. It should be include our comfort. That when we die, we can be promised of the hope of eternally with Christ because we've trusted in Christ. But there's something more here. There's something more that this miracle is so astounding that as we, as we live throughout eternity, we will understand it even more deeply and we will continue to praise him. Don't be afraid, Jesus said. I am the first, the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and the grave. I'm going to ask our musicians to join me on the stage because we're going to sing a little bit more this morning, and I want to prep you for that because guess what? If you think we sing too much, then you probably don't want to go to heaven, right? Because you're going to have to do it there forever and ever. But I want to just introduce you to one final thought. Here it is. Notice that when you see what God did and how Christ died, the word that shows up is worthy. Again, in the book of Revelation, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. See what he did? He created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. They couldn't have kept existing if it wasn't by the will of God. Verse nine, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you. There it is again. Worthy are you for you created all things. Worthy are you for you were slain and by your blood, you ransom people from God, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Let me ask you a question. Why do you think there's people of every tribe, nation, and, and language in heaven? Because the English language is not sufficient to give glory to God alone. It needs other languages. It needs, it needs Mandarin. It needs Bengali. It needs Hindi. It needs Portuguese. It, it, it needs Arabic. It needs all of these languages because these languages communicate something of the greatness of God that our language cannot do. And here's what we know, that all of that happens because God alone is to receive the glory. A compassion so vast, God looked at you and loved you. A sacrifice so extreme that he sent his son to die for you. Pause right there. Just know this that if you've never placed your faith in Christ, that's all that he's asking. For as many as believed in him, John 1, to them gave he the power to become the children of God. That's right. It's not about you getting better. It's not about you cleaning yourself up. It's about you recognizing you need a savior and turning to him. The Bible uses, doesn't use, it, Gospel of John doesn't use the word achieve once. It uses the word believe 90 times as if to say, simply believe. It's a compassion so vast, a sacrifice so extreme, a miracle so astounding. If you've never trusted Christ, I'm going to encourage you to do something. Don't walk out of here this morning without just looking at somebody around you and say, hey, I need to become a Christian. Can you tell me how? Okay. And if they say, um, no, I don't know how, then find somebody in here that can. There's a bunch of people in here who would love to help you with that, right? Because it is about believing and placing your faith in Christ, not thinking you can do it on your own. There's one more thing. Here it is. I want you to stand and I want you to read these words with me like you mean them, also from the book of Revelation. A reminder that this is what we do for all eternity, so this is a practice session, okay? For just a few minutes, it's a practice session. I'll read what's in white, you read what's in, uh, highlighted, and when there is an exclamation point, believe me, you should read it like it's got an exclamation point, okay? Here we go. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you, for you were slain and by your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe 
and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders of the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Stop there. You need to know that number is hundreds of millions. That's how many angels will worship. Hundreds of millions. And then besides the angels, we'll add our voices to them because only we understand this firsthand. Saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne, Amen. We trust you've been encouraged by today's lesson. For resources to help you move forward in Christ, we invite you to check out our website, aboutfbc.org, or our Facebook page, Fellowship Bible, Mullica Hill.